Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Image Doctors Photography Podcast. I'm Jason O'Dell. And I'm Rick Walker. And once again, we are back to talk all things photography. How's it going, Rick? It's going well. All right. Well, I hope everyone survived their New Year's celebration. Welcome to 2024. Wow, we made it. That's pretty. I did have to the write number it on at least one form already, and fortunately, I didn't screw it up. That's that's good. You know, it's uh, we don't pull out the checkbook as often as we used to. That's for sure. No, and I I did celebrate the start of the new year by creating a new Lightroom metadata template for 2024 and a few oh. copyright things too, just so I have true. It. That's a good tip. If you use Lightroom and you're putting in copyright, you'll need to change the date manually. Mm-hmm. You need to make sure it says Create that. a new preset. Yeah, yeah. Make 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 a note to do that if you haven't done so already. Um, I haven't had that problem because I'm I'm doing it a different way, but that's mm-hmm. that's all good. Um, that's a different story for a different time. Today, we've got two two uh, sort of mini topics to discuss. Our first topic will be um, how to deal with shooting scenes especially landscapes that contain snow at least in certain parts of the world this time of year or sand which is a very similar exposure challenge and subject challenge um other places um so if you're going on winter break somewhere warm you know you can shoot sand in your picture so mostly that kind of stuff and how to how to approach it not just so very from different a, weather, but there are some similar challenges yeah, and, with and, and not just the exposure, but just how to deal with it in the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, we also want to go back to it's been a while since we've done a spotlight on a influential photographer. And so today we're going to be discussing a little bit about the um, photography of probably one of the most well known sports photojournalist photographers ever and that's mm-hmm. walter yost jr yeah and spelled we'll i-o-o-s-s and right. i suspect that when i just spelled it out you know who we're at talking least about. a certain number of our <laughs> listeners went oh i yes. know who that is i never knew how to pronounce his last right. name we had we had to look it up because it's a it, difficult one it, it it's easy different. to say but yeah now now that i know it it makes sense but right yeah so um this is the time of year where, at least in certain parts of the northern hemisphere, we get uh, precipitation that's frozen. White stuff comes out of the sky. And uh, it can really transform a landscape. It can also be a real challenge to deal with. Right, Rick? I mean, this is... I mean, everybody wants to get scenes that have snow in them, but a lot of times we can be pretty disappointed in how they, they actually turn out. Yeah, especially if you don't know a few tricks, and we we will talk about those today. Yeah. So, what do you want to start with first? I mean, just general principles of, you know, exposing for snow, or or how do you want to approach it, or you know, composing, well, or. And and it turns out that it's the same, more or less, for snow and sand. So we'll we'll kind of hit both of those at the same time. Right. They are both bright subjects they reflect a lot of sunlight and they can throw off camera meters if you don't know how to use your camera right or you're not in the circumstances where the matrix metering was tweaked to solve this problem and and, and 
sometimes they can be rendered practically featureless, which can be problems, problematic. Yes. Yeah. So you want to preserve some detail in that sand or snow a right. lot of times. So one thing I learned a long, long, long time ago, like when I was 10, and I was using a camera without a meter in it, and I had one of the little Kodak things taped to the back that said, you know, here are the recommended exposure settings for these conditions was that bright sun emphasis on bright sun on snow or sand it, it requires you to stop down about a, another stop beyond what you would do in normal daylight and you know a lot of people are familiar with the sunny f16 rule where you can go out in regular sunny conditions put the lens at f16 and then shut the, set the shutter speed to more or less what your ISO is. So if you were shooting with ISO, let's say 200 um, speed film or in your camera, you know, set that way, 200th of a second. And it works pretty well most of the it time. Does. The key is if you do the same thing in snow or sand, you know, where there's a lot of it, it's more like an F22 rule. So we're not suggesting you actually shoot at f22 no what we're talking about is you use an exposure combination that would be something like that so that in your example um 200 of the second at f16 would be also 400th of a second at f16 if you were in snow mm -hmm. and then you could go even faster than that if you wanted to open up your aperture so go to f11 and now you're at um 800th of a second yeah that those sorts so that's of combinations one way of thinking about it right the other way of thinking about it is if you were just using a dumb exposure meter right, and pointing is, it at the sand or snow, it's going to underexpose the image. So you'll have to open up, usually mm -hmm. by a stop and a half or even two stops. And that's kind of how I learned it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where, yeah, where meters were just taught. And we're talking about not evaluative matrix. We're talking about traditional sort of center-weighted meters. Or even a spot meter on the snow, you know, it's going to render it. If you go by the meter, it's going to give you a nice neutral gray. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, and, I, and I that used remember... to be a problem. In that, you know, you would cut pictures back with gray sand or gray snow, if especially if you were shooting, you know, black and white film, right? Yeah. So I I knew what we were just talking about. Yet when I got my first knicker mat um, when I was fourteen, I remember. Um, going out to Breckenridge, Colorado shortly after that and doing some photography. And I just used the meter. I wasn't thinking about it. And I got my slides back because I was shooting slide film. And I'll just say I had lots of very nice, abstract, completely black and white images. <laughs> oh, no. Because the meter wanted to stop down too much. Right. And, and right. It made the image too dark. That's the, that is, it been, was a little bit interesting, but it wasn't what I had in mind. Historical. That's the historical challenge. Now, if you do have a, a newer camera, which most of us do at this point, has some kind of evaluative meter, mm -hmm. most of the time they're pretty good um, at recognizing those bright highlights and letting them get brighter um, without stopping down too far. If it's sunny. Right, if it's sunny. Now, when you get into overcast or cloudy conditions, you can run into issues. And, so, and just a straight shot with your camera will usually result in underexposure. So you'll have to open yes. that. And, and I saw this plenty in Europe a couple of weeks ago. It was very much 
cloudy most days. Um, we had overcast conditions, not usually terrible overcast, like not completely blank, but you know, a little definition in the sky. But what you'll notice, is, and, and this is the easy thing to do, um, if you've got a camera, especially a mirrorless camera, where you can look at the histogram in live view, either on the back of your LCD or in the viewfinder, like a mirrorless camera was. And if, if you just look at that, where it puts the, the, the peak on the highlight side, the right-hand side, it's oftentimes, you know, a quarter of the way down from the right edge. Mm-hmm. You know, as much as a third, which means everything that's really got the scene in it, you know, all the buildings or the people, whatever, are going to be really pushed to the left quite a bit. And it's better in general. Yeah, underexposed. It's going to be better in general to push that back so that your histogram is more or less touching the right edge Mm -hmm. on the right side. That's going to open up the shadows in the exposure and mean it's less shadows you have to pull out and post, meaning less noise, less whatever. It's just going to be a better exposure. And you're going to still capture the highlight detail in that sky. You can bring it. I found you can bring it sure. down and recover quite a bit. There's some some tricks that I was doing. And, you know, I, I got some pictures where, you know, if you just looked at the out of the camera shot, it was just blah. But there was enough definition in the sky to at least give some texture to it. And that was cool. Yeah. And by the way, the way matrix meters work is they'll read the light. And when it gets to a certain brightness level, that corresponds to what we were talking about earlier, bright sun on sand and snow, they stop. They will not let the camera stop down further and make it darker. They'll just stop right at that point because they'll say, this is the the brightest it's going to get with a natural light source, i.e. the sun. It's yeah. not going to get brighter than that and make sense. So stop. Um, so it kind of takes care of those situations in bright sun. Bright sun. Now you just have to think hard and overcast. So so that's an exposure thing, and that's always been yep. a challenge. But but yep. what about approaching the scene? Because if if you're out there in the middle of the day, for example, snow, sand, whatever, it's pretty darn featureless. Yeah, and just as an example, it's this has been it's been several years since we did it, but we had a lot of fun shooting at Great Sand Dunes National Park, getting out mm-hmm. there in the dune fields, and we've done that other places as well. And a key thing is getting out there early or late, where you get that nice side light coming across, creating texture, shapes. It's amazingly different than what it could be just a half hour different right and if you get those if you get that side lighting then you can start looking for leading lines and patterns whether it's a true landscape or even just a close-up abstract there's lots of ways to explore those kinds of, of scenes another interesting thing that will tend to happen in that condition though as well and we've both seen this in dune fields mm-hmm. is you get mixed white balance um, you get very blue shadows Ooh, and you can yes. get, very, you know what I mean? And it, it, it's just, wonderful. It, it can be very right. And it's, it's not a bad thing. Um, you know, sometimes we tend to try to fix this in post warm up, warm up the shadows and a little bit can be fine, but, but for ice or snow, you want the shadows to be blue. Cause that gives you that cold, cool feeling of the, of the environment you're in. 
In right. I, I, I will say I've done things where I had that situation, let's say a dune field and bright sun on portions of them and other sections in shadow. I've done things so that the shadows were a little bit bluer. It's mm-hmm. really easy to do that with all the masking sure. tools that you find in software these days. Sure, that's true. Um, but yeah, leaving those shadows blue, um, which really, if you think about it, that's how daylight balanced film would render those shadows. So mm-hmm. we're used to seeing that if you, mm-hmm. you know, ever shot daylight balanced it feels, films. It feels right? good psychologically. Yeah, it's just, it's it seems right. So if you warm up those shadows too much, um, it can get weird. <laughs> it just doesn't seem, it doesn't feel right. Right. And that's true for both snow and sand. So yet another thing that's kind of common. So any other things that you like to do when you're dealing with the snowy scene? Um, I think an important thing, and again, this is true with both sand and snow, is try to get out there um, shortly after um, water has come through, the wind has come through, whatever, to clear out things like footprints. Smooth it out, yeah. Yeah, because those those just don't look good. That's and, especially and true usually, with dune fields. <laughs> yeah, it really is. And and if you can't find um, sand or snow that hasn't been traipsed through, you know, it's it's some retouching that's not all that much fun. It can be a real challenge having gone on workshops out at White Sands. You know, and it's such a popular place. If you don't get out there to certain spots or get out there, you know, the best, your best bet is it gets windy out there. And if you can get out there after you've had a storm come through, then it's perfect. It's, it's exactly. wonderful. And, but that and doesn't similar, always work, you know? <laughs> and, and similarly, you want to get out there shortly after the snow is finished falling or maybe even while it's going on. It depends on the shot. But, mm-hmm. you know, so you get the fresh stuff. And also you can get that early morning um, frost on trees, which is gorgeous. Gives it some sparkle and a, yet another subject. Uh, so I, I think a, a key thing is watching the weather and then getting out there soon after that weather has come through. I want to throw one last little thing in, which I've seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get this around here where you've got a landscape with a mountain and the mountain has snow on it, but the landscape really doesn't. You mm-hmm. know, So you just have snow cap on a peak right so in other words colorado springs nine months of the year right like yep. kind of like right now actually. um in that case you're never really going to preserve too much detail in that uh, you know when the when the snow is just a small fragment mm. of your scene you know there, there's not a whole lot of point in trying to truly you don't necessarily want to blow it out but but it can be pretty close to clipping and it's not going to matter as long right. as you get detail in the texture of say the mountains or whatever. It's when the snow is a more dominant element in the scene that you want to make sure you're exposing to get, get that uh, detail and stuff in it. And that's the kind of stuff that we're talking about. Today. Right. Right. Where so it's, it's not just a picture that has a snow in the back or, you know, no, no, no. But the same rule works if you're, you know, taking pictures and you're, um, you know, doing stuff of, you know, skiing or, or you're at a beach or something, you're going to, it's going to be the same idea. And mm-hmm. you're going to, you know, you want to place those. I, I, I find the best beach shots, same thing. It's, it's later and it's earlier in the morning or later in the day where you don't have to worry about just bright 
overhead sun. Right. I, I personally find manual exposure to work pretty well in these situations. But, well, you know, good... that's a personal preference. Yeah, you can use kind of whatever you want. But as long mm -hmm. as you're keeping an eye on your meter, or again, if you have a newer camera, look at that histogram. It it saves you a lot of pain. Mm -hmm. I think that's that's a good thing. So let's... um. So that's our, our tips for, for this, you know, for sand and snow. Let's move on to spotlight on Walter Yose. Um, Yose, excuse me, Yose. Right. I See, even I can't pronounce it right. <laughs> it's My apologies to, to, to Walter here. But um, <laughs> if you picked up an issue of Sports Illustrated at any point in your life in the last 50 <laughs> years, you've probably seen photos by by Walter Yose. Um, he, he started out... Um, I mean, Rick, you mentioned this, but I mean, we were just looking up his biography stuff and it's, it's remarkable. He, he got, he attended a, the German school of photography in New York city at the age of 16. And at, by 17 years old, he got an assignment from sports illustrated. So this tells you that, oh my I don't God. know what was going on at that time, but obviously <laughs> they liked him enough that, that, mm -hmm. you know, you, you don't just hand that out. Now, admittedly sports illustrated was, you know, newer back then but still come on that's that's amazing it was a big deal that that is a huge deal um and and then it was only two years later that he got a cover i mean if it's one thing to shoot for sports illustrated or national geographic or whatever but it's a totally different thing to say you got the cover that's like to me the you know in that universe that is the most prestigious thing you can get right and and they're both really good right i mean you know yeah you know, I mean, yeah covers freakish um, and then he then at the age of 19, he got a several year long gig for Atlantic Records as, yeah, as a as their their photographer. Yeah, shooting Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, a bunch Brown. of other famous that's, that's... musicians. I mean, that's just amazing. And I've seen his photos of Jimi Hendrix in concert. They're great. Right. I'm pretty sure I've seen them before. But I mean, then he... the stuff he did. In the 70s and 80s, in particular, with sports photography, is so incredibly iconic. It, it's transformational, you know. And and if you've seen, and he has a combination of stuff. So one of the things he did, he'd been shooting football games and boxing. I mean, Muhammad Ali, and you know, all, all in baseball and pretty much every sport for Sports Illustrated. And then he had a huge project in the early 80s because he covered the 84 olympics as part of an actual project that was outside of sports illustrated so mm -hmm. a lot of these iconic 84 olympics and if you were you know like me that was that was a big deal for us here because i think that was the first time the olympics had been back in the united states in quite some time right um, i mean other than the lake placid uh, uh winter games right. right you know but i mean the lead up to the 84 olympics is permanently etched in my mind partially because that those were times when i would go out and visit my relatives in los angeles every summer this and, is where it was held and that's where it was and so it was a big in fact my grandmother actually took pictures from inside the la coliseum of you know cool stuff going on but um and they went to some of the events but that was a big deal that was the mary lou brett gold medal i mean that was you know a, a lot of mm -hmm. a lot of things so his his stuff there but when I look through his photos and you realize how far back he went, in my opinion, um, he's one of the 
pioneers of this sports photography as storytelling and an art form right that that is different than just the photojournalist style that came earlier of here's the guys doing mm-hmm. you know catching a football or you know right basketball thing he has an entire series on michael jordan so i mean if you were into sports in the 80s and early 90s i mean <laughs> his work was everywhere but i really just see and and you can get it from his his website um uh you just look at the images that he has that are on his website these are the shots where you start seeing different styles not everything is just a close-up of the guys in action sometimes it's them before or in breaks in the action of of expression close-ups of hands and tape or even wide shots of more of the whole you know he's got a lot of different angles on things and, and again it's that storytelling you were just mentioning yeah and i i'm pretty sure um you know guys like my friend dave black would probably point to Walter is one of their influences because it's hard not to be. Yeah. Um, this is this is just a different style and I think it's become the predominant style in sports photojournalism. Mm-hmm. You know, this idea of athletes not only during their peak performance but also with their quiet moments. I have to believe that for a period of time there there were sports photographers that were handed a copy of sports illustrated with photos in it that he had done. And they were told, I want you to get photos like Walter Yost. That's your goal. <laughs> it would I be firmly surprising. believe that the other thing is for me, you know, I really got into photography, you know, pretty young, but it was during the seventies. And I, I remember going through modern photography and popular photography at the time and just, reading up as much as I could on it, you know, at the school library. And by God, a lot of his images showed up in his photo magazines at the time. He, he was extremely well-known. I remember Nikon ads highlighting him um, and his photography. I mean, he was very, very prominent and stayed that way for so long. And he did but do a fair bit of work me. with strobes as He's well. He's still alive. So, yeah. He's 80 years old. So he he has everything from the you know the live action you know shooting to the the you know the promo shots that you would use on Sports Illustrated cover you know the guy mm-hmm. you know, holding the basketball in one hand where it's clearly a uh, staged but in a good way I mean you know they're using lighting to their advantage and getting cool backdrops and stuff um, one thing I've always liked about Sports Illustrated. Um, is that they've got archives online that you can go through and look at. And this this has nothing to do with, with Walter Yost, but if you look at sports photographs through the years, it's amazing. You can see the leaps in technology from gritty black and white film to grainy color film to all of a sudden digital things that were <laughs> indoors clean it's it's amazing the 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 difference in the quality of the images not that they're bad images i'm just saying like the in the in terms of the the noise the grain the it's amazing to see that um 
as a historical marker, you know, to go back and look and look at sports shots from the eighties when it was all color film mostly versus mm-hmm. stuff in the, in the mid two thousands when digital was first coming out to now it's crazy how much, how different it gets. So it's just a thing. Anything else well, you want to add? I, I, I would just recommend that as a starting point, people go to his private website, which is a really simple one. It's walteryost.com. So W-A-L-T-E-R-I-O-O-S-S.com. We'll put it in the, in the notes for the podcast, but it's an easy one. And then just start perusing. He's got it broken out by, you know, some featured images, baseball stuff, basketball, boxing, go down the list. Even a category called Michael Jordan. Right. And you're going to recognize yeah. some of these images for sure. Yeah, you'll you'll see them. Um, fans of the San Francisco 49ers will clearly remember a certain image that he captured from 1982. Of Dwight Clark. Yep, that one. So, the like catch. I said, yep. If, if even if you didn't know the name off the top of your head, you're going to see the pictures and go, "Oh, that's the one." <laughs> you'll realize just this this guy was just incredibly pr- prolific, and it's a study and talented. In, yeah, it's a, just a, it's a study in how to do sports photojournal storytelling art it's just amazing yeah well with that i think we've come to the i think end that was another show where we're yeah it's good hey you know <laughs> i wanted to do sports photography at one point i wasn't that great at it but it was a fun thing to do it's and not easy to do it isn't easy to do and uh i have a lot of respect for people who do it especially when they do it as well as this i i think it's just remarkable it really is. So anyway, again, happy new year. Welcome to 2024. Uh, we look forward to spending the next uh, year with you guys on the podcast. Don't forget if you want to sponsor this show, we really do appreciate it. It's very helpful. You will get access to things like our image doctors, private blog, bonus video episodes, and more the occasional zoom hangout with us. Uh, go to image doctors, photo, com, and that's where you'll find it. So until next time, happy shooting. All right. Bye-bye.